Welcome to Sound Tradition, where we examine the theology, practices, and traditions of the contemporary church in light of the Bible. My name is Jason Shirk. And I am still Luke Hitz. Yeah, and it's good to have him back. He is safely back with us this week. And I have uh, come back to a normal shape and size. A little more rotund than normal. Well, I'm still, no, I was talking about that. I was talking about swelling from poison ivy. Oh, yeah, I got you. Life life advice for everybody out there, don't smoke poison ivy. Yeah. If you want to know the story, I can tell that some other time. I didn't actually smoke it, but I did, I think we got it in our face and maybe inhaled it. I made an aerosol form of poison ivy, basically. And I saw the pictures. You did not look at all like Luke Hitz. My face puffed up so much, I look like a different person. Yes, completely. I'm feeling a lot more normal, but I still itch a little bit. Okay, well, today we are coming back to our topic of inerrancy as we continue to work our way through the fundamental series. This will actually probably be a series within a series because it is going to take us a while to work our way through it. Obviously, we're not going to be able to tackle every single passage that there are questions about that people have, but we want to highlight some of the key ones, especially ones that bring out different principles. When we deal with the topic of inerrancy, a lot of times people struggle with understanding the differences in inerrancy because they have a false understanding of inspiration. When we talked about inspiration, we talked about how Um, Some people view inspiration as a mechanical dictation, where God literally put them into a trance and made them write the exact words that he wanted them to write outside of their will with nothing of them involved in the process. Their hand just moved as he (laughs) made it move, basically. Okay, So he possessed them almost in in a way, you know? And that is not a biblical understanding of the concept of inspiration. So I want to look at a couple basic concepts before we delve into some more of this um, to lay a foundation. First, the words of the Bible have been given to us by inspiration. Thus, God breathed out those words that he wanted to be in Scripture. Okay, And there's, there's an understanding here that you need, you need to latch on to. The very words are the words that God desired. They are the ones that God wanted to be in Scripture. But you have to ask yourself, how did God accomplish the process of inspiration? So the second concept is that God used human authors to write those words in such a way that their understandings, personality, emphases, and knowledge of grammar all played a role in what they wrote. As a basis for this concept, you look at 2 Peter 1.21, which talks about the prophecy of old time not being given by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so the idea here is that the Holy Ghost moved them to write or to do what God wanted them to do. And the illustration that's often used when we talk about inspiration in this way is of a boat on the sea. With the boat, it finds its movement, like specifically a sailboat, it, it moves because the wind is blowing it. And so the wind determines where it's going to go. But what actually does the sailing? It's actually the boat itself. The boat itself. <clears throat> and the boat interacts with the waves mm-hmm. in a boatish style of way, basically, you know? And depending on how the boat was built and depending on how much water and how mm-hmm. high the waves are, or where you are in the world, all those things are going to affect how the boat sails. Right. But the wind is the thing that is driving dr- it, pushing it. Yes, yeah. And I think that's an ac- accurate ac- description to show 
the method or the means by which God gave us his words through inspiration. Because God directed men to write in a way that the words themselves were the ones he wanted them to write, but he was still using their own abilities, their own personalities in that process. Like the boat interacts with the waves, the human interacts with the words that were written down on the page in a, in a human type of way. So that is, is both human and God-given yeah. at the same time. I think there is a little bit of mystery mm-hmm. in this whole thing. Obviously, right. We're never we're not even trying to say we've got this all figured out. No. Our, the last time we talked about this, we mentioned the, the different modes where mm-hmm. sometimes God gave a vision, sometimes yes. a dream. You know, there's so many different ways that God blew, if you will, blew the wind into their sails. Yes. But in the end, God said, you know, what, what we're saying, the Bible says, is God made sure that the words that are there are what He wanted. Yeah. So the question then comes, when anyone does an honest study of the scriptures, why are there so many differences in the text and why would, why would God allow them? You know, specifically, one of the biggest areas that people have trouble with is in what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, <laughs> and Luke. And then you throw John in there that he adds even more differences. Yes. <laughs> okay. But the synoptic gospels were basically, they're approaching the same from the same perspective, from the same v- viewpoint in some ways, because they present a lot of the same events that yeah. occurred in Jesus' life. There's a reason for this. A lot of people have um, put out the theory that both Matthew and Luke were using Mark as source material. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And so you, you can study some more into that topic there. But the problem is that as close as they are, there are still some differences between these passages. And when thinking people look at these difficulties, they often have one of three responses. They reject the Bible because it contradicts itself or seems to. Some, some people, they ignore the differences because I just have to have faith and believe. You know, That's not an accurate response either. And then on the, on the third option is in faith, some people search for reasonable harmonizations between these passages. And I'm using that word harmonization a little bit loosely from <laughs> what you'll see it if you do some study in this topic. So, but uh, th- those really are your three options. Reject it. Right. Accept it blindly or in faith, search for the, search for the truth. And I think it's, impo- it's important to also remember um, that there are things that we will never know and that we yes. are, we are finite human beings. And so we, we do have limits on yeah. our knowledge but that doesn't mean we don't search. That doesn't nope. mean we just blindly blindly accept it as well. Um, I wrote a big list of questions, and one of them was, did God have to tell us everything about everything? And obviously, no. <laughs> there's things we're never going to know. I think there's things in the Bible that written to a certain people in a certain time period that was for them, and it was yep. recorded, and mm-hmm. we're probably never going to quite get all of it because right. we're so far removed from it. Yep. But that's okay. And really, our goal, my, one of my goals in this is for to, to get people to approach some of these hard things and don't be that first person who just rejects. I think quite often a lot of young people, they're not really deep, solid Christians. And they don't want to invest the and, effort to study yeah, they don't either. Want, they don't want to put the effort into it and they <laughs> mm-hmm. go off to college or they, once somebody comes along and... And a smart teacher tells smart them. smart teacher yep. presents something to them and then they, they're so shallow. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of wanted to go off on their own anyway, and they're like they just leave the church. Right. Yeah. So that shouldn't be your response. It shouldn't be, oh, well, look at all these contradictions. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't. I think a lot of our churches are, like you said, they're the the second option. 
Mm-hmm. They're like, well, I've never thought about it. I just, I just trust my pastor. And that's fine, except until you get out there and try to witness to somebody. Yeah. Knows way more. I, th- I feel like people who aren't Christians know the Bible more of better the, than yes, we do, yeah. which is yeah. sad. <laughs> and you, you can't necessarily fault all the, all the pastors that fall into this category because some of them haven't had the training or the even the mental capacity to handle this. I mean, yeah. we, we've known pastors who graduated from our Bible college who, when they enrolled, didn't know how to read, you know? Yep. <laughs> so every, everybody comes with their own set of tools mm-hmm. to to the ministry, and I, I think it's I think it's a problem to hide from yes. those issues. But I don't necessarily fault everyone who is scared to deal with them because they they know what their limitations are. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> so that brings us back to why God would allow these differences in the scriptural text and I can't speak for God. I am not God, but I'd, l- I'd like to give some of the reasons that I think that God could have allowed these differences. And one of the biggest that I see is that it allows the Bible to be a highly personable book, not an impersonable textbook. Each, each author wrote from certain experiences and with certain purposes in mind for what he wrote. And they had different emphasis than other authors in the Bible. You think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do we have four gospel books in the first place? If they were all writing exactly the same stories, exactly from the exact same perspective (laughs) with the exact same details, we only needed one gospel book. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why the gospels are attacked so much is because most of the rest, most of the rest of the Bible doesn't have multiple accounts. Now there are a few uh, in the Old Testament. You got Chronicles and Kings, and you got a few places where you have correlating stories but most of the bible you only get one account mm-hmm. so you don't have to worry about any contradiction but here you've got four different four different accounts yep. and so why did why are there even four why why didn't why didn't mark write one and that was it yep and it just it allowed them to make personal choices and what and how to dis, to present the information as they as they wrote the gospel writings down and i think it's also important as we approach this to understand that the Specifically in this discussion, the writings themselves are what were being inspired. So it may be that they presented different, like they, they may have quoted Jesus in a different way, okay? But God inspired them to record that quote in that right. way. The writings itself were what were inspired. So, so. the holy, you know, it, getting into the mode, maybe just a tiny bit and we'll mm-hmm. leave this alone. But if the... Holy Ghost, as Jesus said, would help them remember things. And if they did have, say, Mark was the first one written, as some think, mm-hmm. and as they went back and read Mark's account, you know, is that throwing out the Holy Spirit? Maybe <laughs> they did some research, the Holy Spirit helped them remember, but in the end, they wrote something. Yes. And in yep. the end, God moved them to write. To write. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And uh, one thing that it kind of accounts for some of these differences is that the gospel writers, it's pretty much accepted these days by a lot of a lot of researchers on this topic that the gospel writers used what we call a Greco-Roman biographical genre. And Michael Lacone has actually done a, quite a bit of research into this genre of literature as he studied Plutarch, a Roman historian, and studied the way that he presented multiple accounts of the exact same events. And so within that Greco-Roman biographical genre that was customary in their day when they were writing, it allowed for a lot of literary differences and styles of presentation of the material based on 
themes. That's, that's a big concept that you will see later on. And one of the techniques that he talked about was what we call spotlighting. So in spotlighting, sometimes an author will focus on one thing because it thematically matches what he's trying to get across. An example of this is in the resurrection narratives. Matthew and Mark, they only reference one angel at the tomb, while Luke and John reference two angels. In Matthew and Mark's case, they were spotlighting because one angel specifically announced the resurrection of Jesus. And so they focused on that one who was speaking, basically, in their right. presentation, versus Luke and John gave a fuller account with more details as to how many angels right. were actually there. So. And I feel like some of these are some of the easiest ones mm -hmm. to debunk because it's like, okay, somebody mentioned something and somebody didn't. Right. Yeah, how is that? A, it's not a contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction. <laughs> it just means that one person left out that detail. Right. That's it. Yeah. Another, another reason why these differences exist is it allows the authors to highlight different theological emphases in their narrative. So all the Gospels are telling us facts that actually happened. But in doing it, they help us grasp their theological significance by presenting the material the way that they do. Their reason, and that was their reason for writing what they wrote. If each author didn't have a specific audience and a purpose for writing their gospel, again, there would be no reason to have four gospels instead of just one gospel, right? <clears throat> yep. I mean, I've <clears throat> I've heard this preached many times that the gospels, you know, this gospel is written to this people. This was written to this people. It doesn't act. Uh, does it say that anywhere? It doesn't say that, but you can you can get that from and the tradition it. for that understanding way, yes. has gone all the way back to the hundred eighties. Like so. it's not a title. Yeah. This is the book. The gospel <laughs> written to the of John, Gentiles. Written to the Gentiles. It's not <laughs> yeah. there, mm -hmm. but you can you can kind of get that sense from reading it how it's yes. written and the the way it's written. Yep. Uh, even just the the words or the the way like John referring. He refers to himself as the beloved. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to. It's like, did everybody know who he was? You know, but it, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent now, but it's easy to, to look at the gospel. They, they had a purpose. Right. They, like, like Luke's gospel, he actually makes a little statement at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, he tells to who he was writing. He's yeah. like, somebody, I get, apparently somebody had been asking about this and said, hey, I've got a good understanding of the whole thing. I'm going to write it all out. Right. So he, it's, we know who he was writing to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, just wanted to give a couple extra reasons. I'm not going to elaborate on them a whole lot. But because, because these books have different theological emphases, it always points out that the differences show us that there's a lesson to learn. We have to ask ourselves, well, why is the difference there? Why, why did God allow it? And there's a lesson to learn from that. It also, it gives us humility because it keeps us from knowing everything that, that there is to know about the Bible. If it were a regular old textbook that you could study from front to back and know every little fact and detail about and not have any questions about, we could easily get prideful to where we say, well, I understand everything about it now, you know? Yeah. And pe people are just different too. We, mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually did one today. I took one of those person, not personality, but uh, <laughs> one of those tests to say, what kind of person are you? Mm -hmm. What is it? There's the, uh, ones that produce like your Gandalf or something? No, no, no. no not, <laughs> not the which character Lord of the Rings are. You're not talking about those places. No, but like your personality type. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you go through those things and read them, they're really interesting if you take one of those quizzes. But 
it, it helps you to see what things, what do I think is more important than other things? Yeah. How does my brain work? Yeah. And some people, because of the way their, their brain works, some things are more important to them. So when they come, they're like, well, why did God do it this way? And person, another person of a different personality type might say, well, that's no big deal. Right. But for them, they have a different issue. In the end, we're all imperfect humans. Yes. And God is the perfect one who has it all sorted out. Yeah, and that, that kind of brings me to a point that I had wanted to bring up a little bit later. But sometimes we'll come to different conclusions about what the best way to har- harmonize these differences in Scripture are going to be. And the honest truth is... That's permissible. That's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. If we're all searching to understand God's word as best we yeah. can, and we come to a different conclusion on how to make all these differences reconcile with each other, that we're doing the best we can, yeah. trusting God and hoping that he'll lead us to the best answer that he can, you know? And that, that casts us on God in faith. That mm-hmm. drives us to have faith in him, to yeah. trust in him, to understand all these things and to, and to work through them, you know? Right. Because yep. I'm more of a creative type person. I'm mm. more of a things aren't don't have to be black and white necessarily. But other people, things things are very black and white. You know, this, this is always true, and that's always true. And if, and if this says this in this gospel and different in this gospel, that can't be. That's unacceptable. You know? And that right. and that's, that comes down to us having to let go of our pride, maybe a little bit. Yes. And, yeah. And be willing to look for truth. Yeah. And one of the last reasons that I gave is that these differences allow God to condemn the world. First Corinthians three verse 19 says that he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Most of the people who look at these differences in the Bible, they aren't looking for a reconciliation, but they generally are the ones who think that they are the smartest in the room and they get tripped up in their own smartness to the point where they, they, they reject Christianity because of these things. But they, they've never even once looked for a resolution to these problems. I can guarantee no. you that because they didn't want a resolution to these problems. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> so. I said earlier, there's a, lot of people, a lot of these people know the Bible better than Christians. But the reason is because they're looking for every all – they're trying they – they've already come to a conclusion in their mind. Mm-hmm. This, you know, there, there is no God. And if there is, I hate him. That's another yes, – yeah. that's another yep. – but – but they're searching the Bible to adju- not adjust. What's the word I want? Justify is the word I want. They want to justify their position, mm-hmm. and we we're on the opposite side. We say, "Well, I believe it, so I don't need to search the Bible for anything." Yeah. So I want to dive into some basic principles for understanding these differences before we actually get into some texts, and hopefully we'll have time to start delving into the texts already. We do have three already prepared and ready to go, but <laughs> it might end up being on next week's podcast here, so we'll see. Right. But one of the very first principles that you need to understand as you approach harmonizing the differences of the Bible or coming up with a, a reason for them is that truth does not always equal exact precision. Okay, Robert Plummer gives this illustration. It says, a while back, the battery in my wife's minivan gave out in the Walgreens parking lot. I took her my Corolla so she could go home with our three kids. I stayed with the minivan and waited on the repairman. Now, in recounting this event the next day, several things might happen. I could write an email and say, my wife's minivan broke down in the parking lot. In talking to someone, I could say, I'm sorry I couldn't make the meeting. My car broke down yesterday. To someone else, I might explain, my wife was driving the Corolla because her car broke down. Hundreds of years later, one might look at this account and think I was being deceptive. 
does his wife have a minivan or a car? Is it his car or her car? Or which car broke down? In colloquial English, car can designate any vehicle a family owns. Also, we're married, so what belongs to me also belongs to her. My name is on her minivan's title. Technically, the minivan belongs to me, but she drives it all the time. Okay, anyways. (laughs) So, um... Basically, you get the idea that in everyday speech and relating events, we use all kinds of literary techniques to convey those concepts. He talks about here the the issue of car being a generic word that could apply to two different things, the minivan or an actual car. Um, He also talks about the process of ownership in our culture is that when I'm married, everything that belongs to me belongs to her. And so when that comes out in our discussion... I think this is, out of the four you have here, this is probably the biggest one that people don't understand. And when they come to all these contradictions in the Bible, if they could get this one, this is the one that would help a lot. Because because we're so divided by time and culture, we don't understand the things that they would have understood and Mm -hmm. not seen it as a contradiction. But to us, it is. Right. Uh, The one other example in the one article you sent me, I thought was really good, was talking about like how many pages is in a book. Mm Mm-hmm. It depends on the context. If you are asking me how many pages in that book you read, and I say 400. He's rounding. I'm rounding yeah. telling you how mm-hmm. many is in it. It might be 398. No big deal. Right. You're not going to say, well, you lied. You said yes. there was 400. Yeah. <laughs> but now if you are, if you work at a publishing house and you need to know exactly how many pages are in the book so you <laughs> Context can, determines the need for yeah, preciseness. Yeah. If, if you're leaving out two pages for 100,000 copies, that's mm-hmm. a lot of money you just messed up. Yes. So it, it, ma- it matters. Yeah, but and we, you will see that in a yeah. lot of the chrono- – the, uh, like Kings and Samuel and, yeah. cr- and Chronicles and all that stuff, yeah. But because we don't understand the culture, we miss some of those things. Mm-hmm. So don't just jump, oh, this is a mistake. You yes, should, yeah. You should be really careful about that. Yeah. If you want to see a more detailed explanation of this point, I recommend John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Word of God. And in that book, the chapter on inerrancy deals at more depth on this concept of, of uh, precision and truth. Okay. Also, you have to realize that sometimes the Bible describes things as they appear. We've already kind of talked about this with the whole sunrise, sunset yeah. kind concept. Heliocentric so, versus yes. geocentric. <laughs> so, the, it was just an idiom of speech. We wouldn't expect a weatherman to be that precise, even though he's a scientist. And supposedly. they don't. But yes. many of them <laughs> you know? will say, well, the sun rose this morning. It was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Another one is the Bible uses figures of speech. This should be pretty obvious considering some of the books are poetical books in the bible yes but one of the examples is the mountains leap for joy okay well is that a literal thing the mountains are leaping up and down no, no. okay so and those are usually pretty obvious too. yep mm-hmm. also depending on the author's knowledge of grammar sometimes errors of grammar are used we see this in the greek text specifically when a masculine pronoun will be used with like a feminine antecedent or something like that. What'd you just say? (laughs) So for you linguists out there, you can dive into what I just said. I'm going to use a more common everyday illustration here. John frame also uses this illustration. I ain't going is considered less proper than I am not going, but the meaning of both phrases is clear. They say the same thing and they can both express the truth. Okay. Right. So the authors could have used something that was less 
grammatically correct or acceptable, but yet still present truth. So God would use the proper English grammar. Oh yeah, right. (laughs) So, (laughs) plus our understanding of ancient Greek has changed over years and years. And honestly, there could have been things that we just don't know yeah. about the grammar of the Greek language. And when so. you when you start to, I've I've just dipped my toes into language a little mm-hmm. bit, and when you do, it really opens your eyes that what you thought was so solid and black and white, you're like no, this is a this is a fluid thing that's been changing through time. It, what's important is being able to express something and somebody understand it, not well. What's you didn't do it the right way? Mm-hmm. Well, that that changes depending on who you are and what time period. Yes. Yeah. Another point to keep in mind is there's a difference between reporting something and approving something. Just because a lie is recorded in Scripture doesn't mean that the Bible condones and accepts that that lie. The Scriptures are just reporting these events. Yeah, uh, John Cloud called it uh, descriptive versus... uh what do you call it? The doctor gives you prescriptive. Prescriptive. Descriptive yeah. versus prescriptive. Okay. <laughs> Which yeah. is a fancy way of saying the same thing. Yeah. You also have a partial description is not a false description. We kind of talked about this as well. Just because all the events are not told in one narrative does not mean that it is false. Okay. Sometimes imprecise numbers are used. Luke talked about that. Rounding occurs. And then at times we have partial counts where the women are excluded from the count in one account. And in another one, the women are included. And it may not necessarily tell you all those details on the surface, mm-hmm. but you have to study the context to, to understand that. And I so. think in some cases in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. there's actually translation errors from the Hebrew. Right. Because yes. in the English, yeah. it, gives, it says 8 or 18 because numbers are really confusing in Hebrew. They can be very easily messed up. Yeah. Okay. Also, sometimes a different order is used to express a certain emphasis. And again, this kind of goes back to that study with Plutarch that uh, Lycona did. Okay. The the authors of Greco-Roman biographical narrative would often rearrange certain events in different chronological orders to present a theme. And so as you look through the Gospels, you will see overall the broad events of the, of the passages are all the same. They're in the same order. Yes. You have the birth, <laughs> the baptism, the, bar- the death, burial, resurrection, all the main events are all in the same order. Right. But some of the other events that were in the middle or the speeches that Jesus gave, sometimes they'll lump three different speeches that Jesus gave at different times together into one passage because they were all on the same theme that the author was right. trying to present yes. in what he was writing. Jesus was preaching and teaching in many different towns. And mm-hmm. like a lot of evangelists, they preach the same message. And yes, yeah. I think Jesus taught a lot of the same messages. Yep. And so there's, there's at least four questions you need to ask yourself when you're approaching the order of events. Could it possibly be that two events are being spoken of? Okay. And usually if there's a broad, largely similar structure to it, it's probably the same event, not two different events. Yes. But could the same speech have been given twice? Again, Luke just said this. Uh, preachers preach the same message sometimes. Jesus probably preached the same message to different crowds. Uh, but wouldn't God preach the message? There's only one right way to preach the message, so wouldn't you do it the right way every time? Every single time, yeah. <laughs> no, because I think the audience is different. Right. Yep. Then you also have, does the author provide hints that indicate sequence 
And then if there is a sequence that is being pre presented, how tight is that sequence? And we're going to get into this in this, yeah. our first example. And in some of, <laughs> some of that, you have to be careful because our English understanding of a word is not the same as yes. our Greek understanding of the, the word then does not mean a tight the, uh, logical succession of chronological events right. in Greek. So it's important to understand those differences. The fourth one is what purpose could the author have for rearranging some of these events? Why, why would he have done this basically? Okay. Okay. So that brings us into our first example, which we might be able to get through this first one. And that is the cursing of the fig tree that is found in Matthew 21 verse 17 through 22 and Mark 11 verses 11 through 15 and followed up with 19 through 25. Okay. Do you want to let me give the synopsis? I've, yeah, I go ahead and give the synopsis this, for I this. this pretty deeply. Okay. So there's just three gospels mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's really Matthew and Mark that give, have the most contradicting because Luke kind of leaves out uh, quite a bit actually. So if I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of the timelines, it's about the triumphal entry. So we know this isn't two different events. Mm -hmm. We know this is one story. Because there was only one triumphal entry. This was near the end. This is the near the Passover, that Passover week, and they have all the same events in it. They they get the the, the colt, they get their they ride through. All people are shouting Hosanna. All that's the same. All three of them. But then you get to the next part where he comes into the temple, and that's where things start to change. So in in Matthew, you have the shortest. You have the triumphal entry mentioned. And then it says he clears the temple. After he clears the temple, he's there healing the sick, and the Pharisees you know, are grumbling about him being there. And then it says that night he lodges in Bethany, and then the next morning he's heading back into Jerusalem, and that's when he's looking for something to eat, and he curses the fig tree. And then it just ends the story right there with presently a dried up. Yes. Yeah. So Matthew gives a pretty succinct short story. Mm -hmm. Mark gives a little bit longer one. There's the triumphal entry. Says he enters the temple. Basically, it says he looks around. Mm -hmm. He just he just he notices the affairs that are going on, and then he goes and lodges in Bethany. Then the next morning, he gets up and curses the tree, and then he clears the temple. And then the next morning, they notice that the fig tree dried up. So there's just another day added in here, basically. Mm -hmm. But when you just do a straight comparison, you're like, wait a minute, he cleared the temple before going to Bethany in in Matthew, but then in Mark in Mark. He goes to the temple, and then he goes to Bethany, and then he curses the tree. Everything's out of sync. If you go look at Luke, it just it simply says there's a triumphal entry. It mentions that he curses Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Then he clears the temple, and then it just says he teaches daily the temple and nightly goes to the Mount of Olives. Yeah, and so Matthew and Mark are the main ones we're contrasting right. here. But I do think what Luke gives gives us a little helps us to put these yeah. pieces together. Mm -hmm. So if you want to say to compare with the things that Jason had here. So you have, I don't think it's chronological reordering because I think it, there's an understanding of, of how, it's, how these things t do fit together. This is what we would call a proper harmonization of the passages. So you have to ask yourself, could it be possibly two different events? I don't think it's No, there, it's definitely the same event. The next one is, um, could the same speeches have occurred more than one time? I think there's a little bit could be here with this one. Because yeah. Luke mentions that he basically curses Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and it's quite possible that that the same thing happened with the fig tree. He curses yeah. the fig tree. It and could have Jerusalem been the, at the same time. It could have been that there was a, some parallelism yeah. going on. I don't, I don't think either way there's a contradiction at that point. 
Um, you also have the point in Luke's outline where he talks about he healed people. Well, Jesus healed people all the time, so right. that that one's not really a, a big point to decide the chronology here. But the thing that you need to know, if you know, understand what's going on for the rest of these Gospels, this was a week of Passover. Mm-hmm. So the triumphal entry is before the Passover starts. He would have been there before it began. Mm-hmm. And he is there for the entire week. And the entire week he's there, he's preaching. That's what Luke tells us. Right. Every So I think what's going on is every day he's going to the temple. Mm-hmm. Every night he's going out to Bethany to yes. lodge. Yep. So he said, well, in Luke it says he did this first, and then he went to Bethany. Well, he did it every night. Right. <laughs> and every day yep. he got up and went to Jerusalem. Yeah. So I, I gave a quick little comparison here of... What, the, the outline that possible, you think that, yes, I call this yeah. is the hits timeline okay mm-hmm. so it could have been like this triumphant entry he enters the temple that first day he sees what's going on and he's grieved by it but then he goes that night lodges in Bethany they had a lot going on getting everything sorted out he doesn't do anything that first day they lodge in Bethany the next day he's coming back into Jerusalem and as he sees Jerusalem he's grieved by it grieved by everything he saw the day before curses Jerusalem Maybe he curses the fig tree that same day. Maybe it was another day, another morning. Mm-hmm. But then he goes in and he goes to the temple, clears out the temple, heals the sick, and he stays there and teaches all day long. Goes back to Bethany, sleeps another night. Next morning he comes up. Maybe this is the day that he curses the fig tree. Or maybe this is the day that they see that it's withered. Mm-hmm. And then he continues to teach daily all that week. And every night goes back to, he go to the Mount of Olives. It tells us in Luke went to the Mount of Olives. And then he would go back and sleep in Bethany. Right. So this was happening all week long. So in, in analyzing this with Luke's timeline, basically at, at the minimum, these events occurred over th- over three days, technically. And so, and so you have within Mark's gospel, a more fuller account of the events that happened to where the disciples and Jesus, they see the tree twice. basically in Matthew's gospel, we have what we would call a compressed timeline. He leaves out a lot of these details. And in fact, Matthew only spends two verses where Mark would spend more like four Mm -hmm. to deal with with this situation. Okay. And so that shows that Matthew is shortening his narrative just to get to the details and move on to the next thing. And so that, that is kind of where the differences occur because Matthew compressed his timeline, compressed the story into the main right. facts. So let's move on. Let's go from there. Yeah. The second issue is, did the fig tree wither immediately or did it wither um, over time when they saw it the next day? And honestly, both could be true. Yes. You could, he, the, the tree could have started withering immediately. And then the next day they stopped and said, Hey, look how much this tree is withered, mm-hmm. you know? And so you have, you have both options available. Also, it's important to understand that in our King James translation, we have the words, let me see if I, where I wrote those in here. Okay. Yeah. They, they talk about the idea of, Sorry, I probably should have looked it up. But it, it uses the word soon, and a lot of translations translate translate the word presently and soon. Okay, A lot of them translate yeah. it as at once and immediately, but both the, both of those words do not have anything to do with instantaneous. Right. Okay? I mean, that, and that's a good point because mm-hmm. none of these three passages lay things out in precise minute by minute, day by day. They're all generalizations right. of that week. Yep. And so basically you have this idea that it, it could have happened over over a couple of days, but trees take a long time to wither. So even if Naturally, it happened yep. in one day, that was still rapidly and it would still be a miracle in the sight of, right. of the, the disciples. But if you're like yep. a precise person who's like everything has to be you – know, 
match up perfectly. None of these mm-hmm. three give you a, a perfect picture. Yep. Okay, and so we will dive into the next example that we have that is dealing with the calling of the of Peter and Andrew and James and John and the Fisher of Men passages next week. But as usual, if you have any questions, go ahead and submit those to us on our Facebook page, and we will get back with you, and grace and peace be with you.